teaching to impress these commands on our, on our children, but the Deuteronomy passage seems so broad to me. Like, when, you, when they wake up and, and when they lie down and when you're walking, I mean, you get the sense of every single thing that you do, this is important, you are to impress it on your children, but I ask, how? Like, how, how do you do that? In the step-by-step, day-by-day routine, how do your kids learn that from watching you? What sort of things should you be doing intentionally so that they learn that from you? What are some of the direct and practical steps that I can take to show my child this formula? Well, as I was searching the scriptures and, and thinking about a, a good story for this, I came upon an unlikely character, actually, and I came upon probably an even more unlikely story. The character is well-known. The story is maybe the most well-known story. It's the story of Christ's birth. And the character that we have is Joseph. And Joseph is really someone that we know, we feel like we know a lot about, at least. He's, he's the earthly father of Jesus. But there's really not much said about him in Scripture at all. And what we do have isn't really helpful for understanding the type of character that he had. I, I did a little bit of a search. This is not official, so don't quote me on this. I could be mistaken by my, my counting. Um, but I found there's 18 references in the New Testament that talk about Joseph, the father of Jesus. And uh, seven of them, seven of them have to do with the birth story. So the birth story about Jesus, Matthew chapter 1 and 2, Luke chapter 1 and 2, and there's seven times that Joseph's mentioned by name in this story, but most of these don't really show too much about his actual character. It just kind of talks about him being there. I mean, certainly we have an idea of what he did, but it's not really helpful for understanding who he really was. Uh, Then we have a number of texts, two of them, Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3, that talk about the genealogy, about uh, tracing Jesus' family lineage, and Joseph is named there twice, one, one in each. Uh, then we have another section, and this is kind of the section that I would label of the relationship that Joseph has to Jesus. And most of these references are, are just kind of the, the narrative of the author saying, remember, uh, Jesus was the son of Joseph. And actually, uh, of these, two of them are, are stated that way, where it says, you know, remember, this is Joseph's son. The other three are derogatory. It's, it's, a, it's a story in each of the Gospels where the, the crowd is actually looking at Jesus and trying to figure us out. And they said, wait a second, isn't this that carpenter's son? Isn't, isn't Joseph his father? And Mark, he doesn't even list Joseph's name. Um, he, so I skipped that one. I didn't count that. I could have said six. But he doesn't even list Joseph's name. He, he says, isn't that from Mary? And so, and so we get a sense of, wow, well, well okay, I guess... Carpentry was not a, a very enviable position, and uh, there's something about the family, perhaps their status, perhaps their wealth, that, that didn't seem all that impressive. But there's, there's uh, two, other, two other categories that, that I've uh, narrowed these references into that give us a, a little bit of a, of a better sense. Uh, one of them is observance to the law, and this comes from one story in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2. You might be familiar with it, where Jesus is dedicated in the temple. And so Joseph is named there along with Mary. They go to the temple. They dedicate Jesus uh, to the Lord as it's, it's taught in the law. And then they also offer a sacrifices for the purification of Mary after her delivery. And then later on, uh, we see that, that they, they worship there at the temple and they stay there at the temple. And, and this is an observance of the law. So we get an understanding that Joseph was someone who observed the law, and that's certainly an honorable thing. And then this last category we're going to focus on for our teaching time is that uh, we get a sense of his character. There's just two references 
for his character where he's named in this. And that happens to be in Matthew chapter 1, where we're going to spend the bulk of our text, uh, looking at our text this morning. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. It's the first book in the New Testament, so it should be easy enough for you to find it. And it begins with the genealogy of, of Jesus, as I've referenced. And then in verse 18 is where we're going to start. And for some of you, you might kind of have to dust off this story because it's June, it's not December, and you kind of have to re- think about this through a different lens because we're familiar with the prophecy, we're familiar with Jesus, the lineage, the significance, and all this stuff. But we want to look at the character of Joseph and say, what is it about Joseph? Who was he as a father? What sort of father uh, can train up his child um, to be as successful here in his ministry as Jesus Christ. And the story begins this way in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. So we go one verse into the story, and we're already, we're already faced with, with a problem. Verse 18, we find out, okay, wait a second. We've got a man and a woman, they're engaged to be married, but she's pregnant, and she's pregnant through the Holy Spirit, okay? And, and for, for some of us, immediately think, well, this is the, this is the doctrine of the virgin birth. Uh, this is one of those references that talks about this, and so you have this understanding of it. And, I mean, there's been volumes and volumes and volumes of books written about the significance of the virgin birth, why it's important to the incarnation and, and Christ's deity and also his humanity and all this stuff. And that's important. That's, theologically, that's very, very important. But I think what we miss when we read this story sometimes, as how Joseph must have felt. I mean, men, imagine you're engaged to your wife if you're married or if you're not married. Imagine you're, you're engaged to this woman that you love dearly and you find out that she's pregnant. And it's not with you. She's a virgin. Or so you think. Like, how, how would that make you feel? Now, in, in this story, uh, we find out that that, um, that Joseph is actually a bit ignorant of, of what's going on. Later on, we're going to have the angel appear to him and kind of uh, catch him up on the story. But at this point, he doesn't really know what's happening. He just knows that she's pregnant. But this is really one of those situations of unexpected news. This is one of those situations where when you happen upon unexpected news, a lot of times it's an opportunity for someone's character to shine through. It's a difficult situation. You don't like that situation, uh, but you get a sense of of this character that comes up. And before we go there, we should really kind of look about what engagement looked like in the Jewish world, because it's very different from our world. In our world, a couple dates, they get engaged, they plan their their wedding, and they get married. There's no kind of legal binding agreement until actually they, they signed the authority documents, and even now in our society, that's not really binding much at all, right? Uh, back in the day in Jewish society, there was three phases to a marriage. The first was the engagement. And what that meant was it was usually an arranged marriage by the parents. Sometimes it happened when the kids were very, very young, and the parents said, okay, the, this, this man and this woman, they're going to get married at some point. And when they became older, they went into uh, the, the pledging stage or the betrothal stage of this wedding planning. And so this was about a year period prior to them actually being united and joined as husband and wife, and this was a legal document. So the two of them, they lived separately from each other, but they were considered husband and wife because this was a legal binding document that said that they were married. And then after that time had finished, then they actually went through a wedding ceremony, and then they consummated the marriage, and they were husband and wife. 
But at this point, they're still in that stage for Joseph and Mary. So that, that's why we have some terminology about divorce and marriage and husband and wife because they already seem to be united in that way. And so Joseph must be thinking, what is going on? I mean, he must have been feeling hurt. He must have uh, been feeling incredible sorrow and, and perhaps anger over this news that he's just received. But, you know, when you think about other stories in the Bible, there's a number of stories where characters are faced with unexpected news. Time and time again, characters interact and are faced with unexpected situations, and, and we get a sense of the type of character that these individuals have. I, I think of the story of Noah. Noah, who is all of a sudden told by God to build an ark when the forecast is sunny and clear with a possible drought in the future. And I mean, it, unexpected news. What's, what's Noah going to do? I think about uh, the character in Acts named Ananias. Ananias is, is told uh, by the Spirit that he's going to meet this man named Saul. Saul is a man who is known for persecuting, uh, persecuting Christians unmercilessly. And the Spirit tells him, you're going to meet him, and uh, you're going to help him, and this is, this is God's chosen vessel to minister to the Gentiles. You have to be thinking, no, you've got it wrong, actually. This is the guy who goes out and kills Christians. It's unexpected news. But you get a sense of Ananias and Noah and so many other biblical characters, when they're faced with unexpected news, we get a sense of what sort of character they have, who they're going to choose to obey, what their thought process is going to be. And in this story, Joseph finds out his fiancée is pregnant. Verse 19, we get a sense for his response. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, because he was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, I used to read this passage and think, oh, Joseph, what a saint. He decides to divorce her quietly. Wow, you know, a man of noble character. But remember, uh, this is a, they're engaged at this point. They're pledged to be married. And, and so this is a legal binding agreement. He, ha he has to divorce her. And when you think about it, actually, he's observing the law because the law of Moses actually compels Joseph to take this action. Uh, we read back then that, that this is grounds for divorce because this is seen as an unpleasing act is the terminology. And I would think that's somewhat unpleasing if you find out that your wife-to-be is now pregnant and it was of, of no consequence to yourself. That's grounds for an unpleasing act. And so he's actually supposed to now divorce her. The law actually goes much further. We read in Deuteronomy that if a virgin is pledged to be married and she and a man are, are found to have slept together, that they are actually to be stoned to death. That's, that's, the, that's the consequence of the law because uh, God says to the community of Israel, you must purge the evil from you. That's, that's detestable to the eyes of the Lord. But Joseph instead, he decides that he's going to divorce her quietly. Now, he does this according to Matthew, uh, because he's a man of character. He's a man who is righteous. And when I think about divorce, the words that usually don't come to my mind are respect and quietness and dignity. But for Joseph, this is the course of action that he takes. He's going to follow the law, but he's going to do it with grace. So he decides that he is going to divorce her quietly. Now, at this point in the story, some of you might be asking, well, what does this have to do with fatherhood? <laughs> I mean, she's pregnant. They have no children. Today's Father's Day. What in the world does any of this stuff have to do with fatherhood? 
that there's no kids watching and learning from, from any of this. But my guess, and as I've seen in many people's lives, is that, is that this is just a glimpse of Joseph's character. We don't know much about Joseph at all. We just have a couple of verses here in this story to gain a sense of the type of man that he was. But typically, people of, of strong character, they tend to repeat actions further on in their life. And you think about Jesus at some point later on, or maybe one of his siblings, asking his parents about their birth story. Kids do this sometimes, especially when they have younger siblings. Mom, you know, Dad, tell me when I was born, as if it's this, this great you know, story that, that they love to hear about in the hospital room. You know, I... I I don't know, I'm speculating here, but there very well could have been a day when a sibling or, or Jesus came to Joseph and Mary and said, tell, tell me about when I was born. And we have a, a sense, a teachable moment where the parent is able to say, well, you know, this is how we ran the course. This is how we were able to be obedient to God. This is how we were be able to be respectful to one another. Because Joseph was a man who decided to demonstrate grace in the situation that he saw himself in. This was part of his character, and it would have been evident as his children began to grow, and there was more opportunities for him to respond in this manner. Because children learn by watching, and because children learn by watching, they will learn grace when they see grace. And when they see grace, they'll begin to live by grace. And Jesus was a child just like you were a child. He was fully human, complete man. He would have been influenced by his parents. He would have watched his parents. He would have seen his father. And I don't think it's any surprise that later on in the Gospels, when Jesus is faced with an unexpected situation, just like Ananias was, just like Noah was, just like so many other biblical characters were, and just like Joseph was, he chose to respond with grace. Maybe it's because Joseph responded in grace in this situation. Maybe it's because Joseph did it in many other situations as Jesus was growing up. I think about the story of, of Jesus encountering the woman who was caught in adultery. And instead of condemning her, he responded with grace and protected her. I think of the story of, of the group of lepers who approach Jesus. And Jesus doesn't turn away from them. Jesus doesn't run away with them. No, he goes back to them and he heals them. He has mercy on them. I think of, of all the stories about Jesus interacting with tax collectors and, and sinners and how instead of condemning them and, 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 and speaking against them and, and letting everyone know about their sins, instead he invites them over. They share a meal together because he responds out of grace. Because children learn by watching. And because they watch, because they learn, they are going to learn grace when they see grace. And when they see grace, they're going to begin to live by grace. Now dads, if you're looking for an application here at this point, think about what it means to live by grace. What sort of things can you do in your life to demonstrate grace to your kids? Discipline them with grace. Speak to your wife with grace. Respond to others in need with grace because when they see grace, they'll begin to live by grace. Now this story continues on. Uh, Matthew's story keeps going, and I'll summarize it for you. It's, it's pretty well known from, from here on out. We see that, that Joseph has this plan. He's a man of righteous standing. He's a man of noble character. And so he decides, I'm going to divorce her quietly. But then an angel appears to him. And while he's still considering this, while he's patiently mulling this over her mind, the angel tells him the story and says, this is what's going on. You know, you, your, your wife, Mary, the, the 
baby conceived inside of her is from the Holy Spirit, and this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to take her home and be her wife, and then when this, this child is born, you're supposed to name him Jesus. And this all fulfills the prophecy spoken of by Isaiah, and Joseph gets a sense of, of what's going on. And, and again, you know, this isn't a dream. And you've got to think, well, you know, how much would he have understood and, and what would I have done in that situation? And then we, we get this verse in verse 24 of Matthew chapter 1. When, Mo, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do, and he took Mary home as his wife. So Joseph wakes up, hears the angel from the, from the dream, understands what he's commanded to do, and he takes action. He's obedient to the Lord. Now, we don't know much more outside of this story, outside of him being a, a man of, of righteous standing, outside of him being a man of grace in his response to, to this news about his wife-to-be, and outside of the story about obedience. But what we do know is that this was a man who, when he heard the voice of God, he obeyed. And as a father, there's really no better attribute than someone who obeys the voice of God. And because children learn by watching, they will learn obedience when they see obedience. And when they see obedience, they will live obediently. Now, this idea that children learn by watching is a principle. We've we started the message this way. This is, this is just a simple principle. You've seen it. I've seen it. Many of us practice this. We generally accept that it's a principle. We've even seen that the Bible makes, uh, makes suggestions for how to live and how to train our children based upon this principle. And like every other principle, you can do two things with it. You can ignore the principle or you can choose to use it for your advantage. A principle is pretty much a static thing. It just, it just exists. It's an accepted norm. Gravity's a, a principle, nutrition's a principle, money management. There's all sorts of principles, you know, that, that we could list off together. But here's the thing, you can, you can ignore it. And lots of people ignore principles. It's sometimes too easy to do. But you have to live with consequences either way. You use it to your advantage or you ignore it, but either way you live with consequences. You can't change or manipulate the principle in any sort of way to, to make it do what you want it to do. Now, I think about the world of nutrition. You know, there's lots, of, there's lots of principles with nutrition. One principle that I've come to learn is that it makes a difference what you eat, how you physically feel, right? I mean, if you, it doesn't matter. You can say, well, that's a bunch of garbage. If, if I eat chocolate bars all day long, forget that principle. I, I don't like that principle. And then, you know, a couple days later, you might feel a little bit differently. If you, if you choose to use this principle to your advantage, you can really reach some, some pretty good physiological um, areas down the road. If you, if you read a, a nice balanced diet and you exercise, you do all these things, you can become quite the physical specimen. Obviously, I've not taken that route at this point in my life. But you can choose to ignore this principle, right? You can do the supersize me mentality of that one guy who decided to eat McDonald's every single meal for a whole month, and he literally almost killed himself, right? Because principles, you can do two things with it. You can use it to your advantage, or you can ignore it. It's your choice. You can do either way. Children learn by watching. It's a principle. You can choose to ignore it, or you can choose to use it for your advantage. They'll learn grace when they see grace. They'll learn obedience when they see obedience. And when they begin to see these things, they'll begin to incorporate them into their lives. So the question, dads, that I have for you today is how are you going to use this principle to benefit your kids? Because your kids are watching you. Your kids are going to learn from watching you. So how are you going to use this principle 
to impact your children. I've got a, another question for those of you who aren't dads this morning. Uh, some of you may not even be an uncle. Some of you may be a mother. Maybe you're not. I'm neither a mother or an uncle, so I'm going to follow suit in, in this as well. But r- regardless of, of who you are, if you're an adult, uh, even if you're a kid, actually, uh, this, this is something that you can do this week. I want you to think about your own father. And I want you to think about a time that your father has used this principle to benefit you. I want you to think of a story. I want you to think of an attribute. And and granted, some of us have poor relationships with our fathers. Some of us uh, didn't grow up with our biological father or with a father perhaps who, who left the home at, at some point. But, and, and that actually can be an incredible teaching point too because sometimes you may have seen something in your father that you abhorred and you thought, I am not ever going to follow suit with that. And the same principle uh, follows suit, but, it, but in a negative way that hopefully turns into a positive for your own life. But I want you to think about a story, a positive story of a time that your father used this principle to benefit you. So if you're a dad, how are you going to use this principle to benefit your kids? And for all of us, what's a time in your life that you can point to and say, my father used this principle and this is how I've now benefited? Maybe you can tell your father that today on Father's Day. Maybe your father's no longer here living on earth and and you can thank God for the legacy that your father's left you, that he's left you with this principle. I want to share one story with you about my father because my father happens to be here today so I can both follow my own instruction and and I can uh, share a story and and affirm him publicly. Uh, My father did a number of of fine things as a father. He certainly had his shortcomings too. I'm sure he'd be the first to admit it. And there's lots of things that both my father and my mother have done uh, in my life growing up that that have taken advantage of this principle, this understanding that children learn by watching. And one of the things I'm most thankful of, and, and my wife, Melissa, mentions the same thing about her parents. We feel so fortunate. We feel like we're, we're years ahead of a number of people in our age category because we've understood financial stewardship and management from our parents. Now, this is something that a lot of parents don't show their kids. This is something that people generally don't learn in the school systems anymore. And if there's a, a great principle to show uh, any sort of advantage to your kids, this is one of them. We feel so fortunate. We learned it from both of our parents. All four of our parents, we feel like, do a good job of managing their money. And, and I feel like this is something that I learned uh, from both my mom and, and my father. And there was a number of things that they did with this. When I was young, probably seven, eight years old, I remember they opened up a checking account for me and put $5 in it, and I felt like the richest kid in the world, and, and they'd help me balance it. And I, I understood the concept of I can't spend more money than I have, which, again, a lot of people you know, don't understand. It's a good principle to learn when you're young. And I saw my mom paying bills on on the kitchen counter, and so again, I had some of this stuff happen. I heard my parents discuss things about people who are less fortunate, people who are having money problems, and how maybe they could help them. And all these things are, are great strategies. They're very helpful, but you know what? They actually pale in comparison to one story that I'll share with you about my father. My dad, he worked hard. He had a day job, but, and this will make sense to some of you who, who know him, he actually did a, a few of other jobs on the side as an entertainer. I'll leave it at that. 
And so sometimes on the Saturdays or Sundays, he would go to a music festival and he'd perform or he'd go to a birthday party or he'd do a variety of different things and he'd get a little bit of money here or there, or sometimes some tips and he'd come home with it. And once in a while, he'd share with me how much money he made. And he didn't do it for the money. He could care less about the money. He just, you know, it's just something that came along with some of the activities that he was involved in. And he would tell me here and there how much money he made and I, you know, Sometimes it wasn't much. Sometimes it was. I didn't really know. I didn't really care, actually, at that, that point in my life. But one day, I think I was probably about 14, 13, 14, 15 years old. One day, he came home from me. It came home from, from some sort of event he was at, and he told me, I made $55 today. Okay, $55. Doesn't sound like a much. Doesn't sound like a little either. Like, great, Dad made $55 today. The next day at church, I'm sitting next to my father, and the offering bag comes down the row. And I see my dad put a $5 bill and two quarters in that offering bag. And then it gets passed on to me. And it goes down the aisle. And I have to admit, my own fallenness and cynicism, I kind of chuckled to myself and thought, wow, my dad takes that 10% rule pretty literally. <laughs> didn't want to do $5, didn't want to do 10 or 6 or anything like that. But as I thought about it a bit more, it it dawned on me, this was a conviction in my family growing up, that you gave God at least 10%. And you gave your best. And you gave him your first. And I saw my dad put that in the bag, and it stuck with me. It's that understanding of good stewardship. You give to God first. You give him your best. Because children learn by watching. And when... They see good stewardship. They learn good stewardship. When they see it and when they learn it, they begin to live by good stewardship. It's a principle. You can choose to ignore it. You can choose to use it to the benefit of your kids. So tell your dad a story today. And dads, how are you going to use this principle to benefit your children? Let's close by praying. Lord, I I thank you that throughout history you've chosen to use fathers to mold the hearts of children. And I pray, Lord, in our congregation today, years from now, we will see these young children, the young newborns who were just born this past week, the teens, we will see all of these children grow into men and women who love you, Lord who have these commandments impressed upon their heart. I pray, Lord, for our dads that they would take this principle seriously, that they would use this principle, they'd leverage it to the benefit of their families and their children. I pray, Lord, this week as they notice a child or two children or or maybe those adults even who who aren't parents, they notice a a niece next to them or a friend or, or someone at school, I pray that when they notice that that child is watching them, that they'd remember this principle that children learn from watching. And they would leverage this principle to your glory and for the growth of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for fathers. And we ask, Lord, that they would feel encouraged today and honored today as we thank you for the role that they've had in our lives. Amen.